Blog Talk Radio. Welcome back to Zion's Redemption Radio Network. I'm your host, Mark Lichtenwalter. This is Fundamentally Mormon. Today we're going to be continuing on with Polygamy in the Bible. We'll be reading in chapter 12, which is on pages 122 to 127. The title of the chapter is The Throne of King David. The reader portion of the program is about 11 minutes long. Listen to this part, and then we'll get into the reading and commentary portion of the program. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. of King David, chapter 12 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 122 to 127. But upon David, and upon his seed, and upon his house, and upon his throne, shall there be peace forever from the Lord. A Kings 2.33, the kingdom of David did not die with him. That throne over Israel was established with a promise of an everlasting succession of kings. God said many times that he would honor King David and his posterity for as long as time is counted. One promise was in Dash, and thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee, thy throne shall be established forever. 2 Sam 7, 16 God also promised David that he would have a son who would take his place on the throne and he would perpetuate that kingdom. God said, A son shall be born to thee. His name shall be Solomon. I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. Crone 22, 8-10 See also Psalms 89, 37 123. From the beginning of creation there were kings among the noblest men on earth. The nobility of kingship existed among the chosen people and was one of the greatest promises to them. In many instances, both in the Old and New Testaments, we read of that special anointing to righteous men. Kings and their kingdoms were much more popular in the Bible than they are now. There are over 3,000 references to kings in the Bible. It is in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible that we read that man was given dominion over every living thing upon the earth. And we further read that pertaining to the two sons of Adam, one received the promise that thou shalt rule over him. 
much historical and scriptural material has been lost as it relates to the kings in Israel. The Bible mentions some of these books that should have been included in the Bible, but somewhere they were lost, perhaps never to be found, such as the Acts of Solomon, 1 Kings 11:41, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, I Kings 14, 19, 16, 5, 14, 27, and the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, I Kings 15, 7, 23. This line of kings was first promised to Abraham and his children. When he was a hundred years old, the Lord told him that kings shall come out of thee, and this was a covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Genesis 17, 6-7 God appeared to Abraham's grandson, the polygamist Jacob, promising him, too, that he would be fruitful and kings shall come out of thy loins. Genesis 35, 11, 124 These kings were to be honorable kings, not the general run of kings among the Gentile nations. Samuel anointed both Saul and David as kings, by the appointment of the Lord. This is the type of king that was to be in the chosen lineage. Other prophets, such as Jeremiah, confirm these promises, prophesying of a Messiah to be king over all the earth, that would be born in that lineage. O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign. And this is his name, whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. Ja. 22, 29, 23, 5, 6. The promises of the Messiah to be born in this polygamist family line were repeated over and over and dashed to David, to Solomon, and then by the great prophets Amos, Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah for over a period of 500 years. When the angel Gabriel came to Nazareth to Mary, he told her that she had found favor with God, and so she would conceive and bear a child called Jesus, and then said, The Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. See Luke 1.32-33 Since the kingdom would have no end, it also meant that there would be no end to the kings either. Jesus was anointed a king of kings, which means that he would rule over these kings. Thus, this succession and ordination of kings did not exist just 125 in Old Testament times, but continued on through the New Testament with Christ. John, the beloved apostle of Christ, wrote, And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth. Unto him that loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Rev. 1, 5-6 Christ, then, honored the promise and covenant made by God to the polygamists Abraham, Jacob, David and Solomon, 
by anointing his own disciples as kings and priests who would reign on the earth. Christ not only would honor the polygamist lineage by being born in it, but he would continue that special anointing to his chosen disciples, for he is Lord of lords, and King of kings, and they that are with him are called, and chosen, and faithful, said John in Revelation 17:14. This was a title that Christ would never lose. For after his resurrection, John saw him and that he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings, and Lord of Lords. Rev. 1916. King David understood that there would forever be succession of men who would qualify as kings in Israel. His last exhortation to his son Solomon was, I go the way of all the earth, be thou strong therefore, and show thyself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord thy God, 126, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, and his commandments, and his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that thou mayst prosper in all that thou dost, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their way, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, they shall not fail thee, said he, a man on the throne of Israel. 1 Kings 2, 2-4 God continued to honor the kingdom of David after David had died. More than 300 years later, when the powerful Assyrian army came to destroy Jerusalem, God said, I will defend this city to save it, for mine own sake, and for my servant David's sake. 2 Kings 19.34 Then to bear this out, God sent an angel into the Assyrian camp that night, and by morning there were 185,000 dead bodies laying upon the battlefield. <laughs> Such a miraculous deliverance was, according to God's word, for David's sake. All that Israel was required to do, to please God, was to walk in David's footsteps. One of the prime features of David's life was that he lived polygamy. God held up David, and other polygamists, as models. And if it was not to encourage polygamy, why did he select polygamists as patterns of his choice? If not, why didn't he select monogamists instead? The selection of God's chosen prophets, patriarchs and kings is very obvious that wayfaring men, though fools, need not go therein. 127. So, let's briefly consider some of the promises made to these polygamists. Thou shalt be a ruler. I was with thee whithersoever thou entest. I will set up thy seat after thee. I will establish the throne of this kingdom forever. My mercy shall not depart from him. Thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever. Kings shall come out of thee. No such grand and precious promises as these were ever given to monogamists. They were given only to men who were polygamists, or who would become polygamists, and to those born in a polygamous lineage. This is evidence that God honored polygamists so much that he put them on thrones as kings over the house of Israel. 128, Chapter 13, Solomon
Okay, so that was the reading portion of the program. Let's get into the commentary here. The Throne of King David, Chapter 12 of Polygamy in the Bible, pages 122 to 127. Quote, But upon David, and upon his seed, and upon his house, and upon his throne, shall there be peace forever from the Lord. 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 33. The kingdom of David did not die with him. That throne over Israel was established with a promise of an everlasting succession of kings. God said many times that he would honor King David and his posterity for as long as time is counted. One promise was, quote, And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. Second Samuel chapter 7 verse 16. God also promised David that he would have a son who would take his place on the throne and he would perpetuate that kingdom. God said, A son shall be born to thee. His name shall be Shlomo, which is the Hebrew way of saying Solomon. (laughs) I will establish the throne of his kingdom over Israel forever. First Chronicles chapter two uh, twenty two verses eight through ten. See also Psalms eighty nine verse thirty seven. We're on page one hundred and twenty three at eleven percent. From the beginning of creation there were kings among the noblest men on earth. The nobility of kingship existed among the chosen people and was one of the greatest promises to them. In many instances, both in the Old and the New Testaments, we read of that special anointing to righteous men. So whenever a king is anointed, he is called a Hamashiach in Hebrew, which I believe in Aramaic is Messiah, and that's where we get the word Christ from. So, um, and I'm going to play something after the reading, if I can get it to record and upload, um, where a Jew is talking about what the the word Messiah means, because I think people have a misunderstanding of what that really is. And, uh, These Jews don't believe Jesus is the Messiah, but uh, they do um, give pretty good definition of what the word Messiah means. So uh, every king who is anointed is called a Messiah. He might not be the Messiah, but uh, actually they're called Hamashiach or Mashiach. So anyway, continuing on. Kings in their kingdom were much more popular in the Bible than they are now. There are are over 3,000 references to kings in the Bible. 
It is in the first chapter of the first book of the Bible that we read that man was given dominion over every living thing upon the earth. And we further read that pertaining to the two sons of Adam, one received a promise that thou shalt rule over him. Much historical and scriptural material has been lost as it relates to the kings of Israel. The Bible mentions some of these books that should have been included in the Bible, but somewhere they were lost, perhaps never to be found, such as the Acts of Solomon, which is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 41, the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel, which is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 14, verse 19, and chapter 16, verses 5, 14, and 27, and the Chronicles of the Kings of Judah, which is mentioned in 1 Kings chapter 15, verses 7 and 23. This line of kings was first promised to Abraham and his children when he was a hundred years old. The Lord told him that kings shall come out of thee and this was a covenant between me and thee and thy seed after thee in their generations for an everlasting covenant. Bereshit, Genesis chapter 16, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 17, verses 6 and 7. God appeared to Abraham's grandson, the polygamous Yaakov, or Jacob, and promised him, too, that he would be fruitful, and kings shall come out of his out of thy loins. Bereshit, Genesis chapter 35, verse 11, page 124. These kings were to be honorable kings, not the general run of kings among the Gentile, or heathen nations, the Goyim, Shamuel, or Samuel, anointed both Shaul, Saul, and David, or King David, as kings by the appointment of Jehovah our Elohim, or the Lord. This is the type of a king, or a melech, that was to be in the chosen lineage. Other prophets, such as Yahu, Jeremiah, confirm these promises, prom- prophesying of the Mashiach, Messiah, to be a Melech or a king over all the earth that would be born in that lineage. I'm actually trying to teach you people Hebrew a little bit, but continuing on, quote, O earth, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will raise unto David a righteous branch, and a king shall reign, and this is his name, whereby he shall be called, the Lord our righteousness. And quote Yahu or Jeremiah, chapter 22, verses 29, and chapter 23, verses 5 and 6. The promises of the Messiah to be born in this polygamous family line were repeated over and over to Solomon, to Shlomo, um, yeah, to David, and then by the great prophets Amos, 
Isaiah, Micah, Jeremiah, and Zechariah for over a period of 500 years. When the angel Gabriel came to Nazareth to Miriam, or Mary, He told her that she had found favor with God and she and so she would conceive and bear a child and call his name Yeshua or Jesus and then said quote, the Lord God or Jehovah your Elohim shall give unto him the throne of his father David or David and he shall reign over the house of you uh, Yaakov, or Jacob, forever, and his kingdom there shall be no end. See Luke chapter 1, verses 32 and 33. Since the kingdom would have no end, it also meant there would be no end to the kings either. Yeshua, or Jesus, was anointed a king of kings, which means that he would rule over these kings. Thus, his succession and ordination of kings did not exist just in the Old Testament times, page 125, but continued on through the New Testament with Christ, or Mashiach. John, the beloved apostle of Christ, wrote, quote, And from Jesus Christ, or Yeshua HaMashiach, who is the uh, faithful witness and first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from the sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever Revelations chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. So I, I wanted to go over a couple things here. Yeshua HaMashiach, or Jesus the Christ, is the faithful witness. Now what is he a witness of? Did you know that Jesus Christ is an apostle of the Father and an eyewitness of the Father? and that it is by the mouth of two or three witnesses that every word is established, and that Yeshua, being the first apostle or witness of the Father, well, there's a second witness or apostle of the Father. You know him as God the Witness or the Holy Ghost, but you also know him as Mark Lichtenwalter. Yeah, I know. It's prideful and arrogant of me to be so bold as to say that I am who I am. You know, when God showed me who I am, it took me a minute because I thought Joseph Smith was that man. And I looked at him and I was like, am I the witness? And the father looked at me with a smile on his face and he kind of chuckled and he said, well, it has to be someone. And I was like, what? Because <laughs> he was trying to tell me I was, you know, one mighty and strong. And back then I thought there was only one. So in that same um, experience, God showed me that there were actually 15 
who are mighty and strong, who are assigned to this earth. And they were the Father, God the Creator, God the Redeemer, and God the Witness. And that I was standing among the twelve who are immediately before the throne of God when the rebellion happened, and I was one who was mighty and strong among those twelve. And that after Lucifer fell and became Hasatan and was cast from his office, that God the Father and God the Son went among us who were remaining among they, they who are mighty and strong and chose me to take the place of the witness. So, that was a pretty heavy uh, experience when God showed me that and it took me a minute to realize exactly what he was saying which I thought it was interesting like he was trying to tell me I was mighty and strong and I couldn't believe it and I didn't want to believe it but then when he showed me what my office really is as a witness of the father it floored me and but it explained a lot. It explained why I have seen and embraced the Father and the Son in the flesh. It explained why God gave me the keys and the power of the priesthood and the kingdom and the fullness of the priesthood. It, it, it helped me realize why I've been through so much in my life and why... Satan has done everything he can to destroy me from the time I was a young child. As soon as I stepped foot on this earth, he's been after me. And it explains why I've seen him so much, because I actually took his office after he fell. And that explained, well, that didn't explain a lot, but that also shocked me that he had attained to the level of God the Witness before he fell. He was foreordained to be in this position that I'm in now. And that's why he hates me so much. So, anyway, um, let's see here. And then there's also this thing, you know, that Jesus Christ hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, which I... I use that to show people that, yeah, there is a plurality of gods. So, um, anyway, we'll continue on with the reading. So we're at 57%. Mashiach then honored the promise and covenant made by God to the polygamist Abraham, Jacob, and David, and Shalomo, <laughs> Solomon, by anointing his own disciples as kings and priests, who would reign on the earth. Mashiach, Christ, not only would honor the polygamist lineage by being born in it, but he would continue that special anointing to his chosen disciples, for he is Lord of Lord, Lords, and King of Kings, and they are with him, are called and chosen and faithful, said John the Revelation in Revelations chapter 17, verse 14. This was a title that Christ would never lose, for after his resurrection, John saw him, and that he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings 
and Lord of Lords. Revelations chapter 19, verse 16. King David understood that there would forever be succession of men who would qualify as kings in Israel. His last exhortation to his son Shlomo, or Solomon, was, quote, I go the way of all the earth. Be thou strong, therefore, and show thyself a man, and keep charge of the Lord thy God. Page 126. To walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, and his commandments, and his judgments, and his testimonies as it is written in the law or the Torah of Moses. And all Torah means is the instructions. That thou mayest prosper in the land in that thou in that thou doest, and whithersoever thou turnest thyself, that the Lord, Jehovah, may continue his word which he spake concerning me, saying, If thy children take heed to their ways, to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, there shall not there shall not fail thee, said he, a man of the throne of Israel. First Kings chapter two verse two through four. God continued to honor the kingdom of David after David had died. More than 300 years later, when the powerful Assyrian army came to destroy Jerusalem, Jerusalem, God said, I will defend the city to save it for mine own sake and for my servant David's sake. Second Kings chapter 19, verse 34. Then to bear this out, God sent an angel into the Assyrian camp that night and by morning there were over 185,000 dead bodies laying upon this battlefield. Huh. I, I wonder if we found the archaeological evidence for 185,000 dead bodies. Because I know that people are always like, well, in the Book of Mormon, they had these large battles, and, and uh... You know, there's no evidence of the battle ever happening um, because, I don't know, like, I don't know. I'm pretty sure that uh, if we knew exactly where to look, we could find the archaeological evidence. But I'm just, I wonder if we found the archaeological evidence for 185 dead Assyrians outside of Jerusalem. All right, let's see here. Such a miraculous deliverance was according to God's word for David's sake. All that Israel was required to do to please God was to walk in David's footsteps. One of the prime features of David's life was that he did live polygamy. God held up David and other polygamists as models, and if it was not to encourage polygamy, why did he select polygamists as a pattern of his choice? If not, why didn't he seek monogamists instead? The selection of God's chosen prophets, patriarchs, and kings is very obvious, so that wayfaring men, though fools, need not err therein. Page 127, or 89%. 
So let's briefly consider some of the promises made to these polygamists. Thou shalt be a ruler. I was with thee whithersoever thou wentest. I will set up thy seed after thee. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. My mercy shall not depart from him. Thine house and thine kingdom shall be established forever. Kings shall come out of thee. No such grand and precious promises as these were ever given to any monogamists. They were given only to men who were the polygamists, or who had become polygamists. And to those born in the polygamous lineage, this is evident that God honored polygamists so much that he put them on thrones as kings over the house of Israel. So that's the end of the chapter. When we come back, and, <clears throat> and where the next chapter we'll read in Polygamy in the Bible is all about Shlomo or King Solomon. So anyway, let me see if I can get this other thing uh, ready so that we can get this recording done about the Mashiach. And um, if we have any callers, you can call in now. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. Jewish is by pointing to passages in the Jewish scriptures that were supposedly fulfilled by Jesus and then claiming, you see, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah because he fulfilled over 300 messianic prophecies of the Jewish Bible. Now, it's important to understand that when we are speaking about Jewish people who have embraced Christianity, the real truth is that the Bible is not where it's at. What do I mean? These people did not convert to Christianity. They did not embrace the Messiah of the Christian faith, Jesus, because they were shown a passage in the Bible. Often, that's what they will claim. And when you ask them to tell their story, they will often tell you, well, somebody showed me this passage in the Jewish Bible, and somebody showed me that passage in the Jewish Bible, and I was overwhelmed by how Jesus fulfilled all these prophecies, and that's what led me to my current beliefs. The truth is, that's never the case. Why? Because for most of these people, if not all of these Jewish people, who came to believe in Jesus, prior to putting their faith in Jesus, the Bible was not something that they looked to as a driving force in their life. For example, had you come to them before they converted to Christianity and asked them whether or not they had their clothes checked for shotness, that's the mixture between wool and linen, they would think that you fell from Mars. Like, why would that be important, even though that's in the Bible? If you ask them about whether they were careful about the food that they put in their mouth, based on passages in the book of Leviticus and the passages in the book of Deuteronomy, they would look at you as if you're crazy. Why? Because the Bible wasn't where it's at for them 
during that period of their life. What happens is, after they put their faith in Jesus, they then turn to the Jewish scriptures as an intellectual matrix for their beliefs. And now, after they put their faith in Jesus, they will go to the Jewish scriptures to try and support what they believe. Some, pe some people have said that Christian missionaries use the Jewish scriptures like a drunk uses a lamppost. Not so much for illumination, but for support. And what we'll see tonight is that the Jewish scriptures really doesn't support the case for Jesus. But let's get started with um, what we want to deal with tonight. Um, I want to start with a quote from a missionary publication to help you understand how they view the Jewish scriptures. The Old Testament contains a complete ID kit so that the Jewish so that the people of Israel can recognize the Messiah and put their faith in him. It's almost like a um, fine, wall, uh, fine Wally or Fine Waldo, you know, one of those comic books where this is like really a, a, uh, a scavenger hunt to look through the scriptures to find clues to be able to identify the Messiah. Anybody who's read through the scriptures know that that's not what the Bible is all about. There's many things in the Bible. The Bible is a huge book, right? And so when they present the Jewish scriptures as being an ID, a, a, what does he call it? A complete ID kit so that the people of Israel can recognize the Messiah, that's the way they're looking at the Bible. And that's why they miss so much of what's in the Bible. Have you ever read something because you were looking for a particular um, issue? And you've missed everything that you've scanned through because it wasn't what you were looking for? Well, very often that's what happens when Christians read the scripture. So long as it isn't something that directly um, talks about what they believe is a reference to Jesus, it's not important and they gloss over it and they miss it. But what they are saying over here is that if you believe in the Jewish Bible, then you will accept Jesus was a Jewish Messiah because he fulfilled the prophecies that the Messiah was supposed to fill, fulfill. Now, in order to examine that claim, or the claim of anyone claiming to be the Messiah for that matter, what we need to do is we need to have an agreed-upon understanding about what the Jewish Bible teaches about the Messiah. Very often, people will engage in a conversation, and they will talk right past each other, because while they're using the same words, they have a completely different understanding of what those words mean. So what I hope to do here tonight is to present a traditional Jewish view of the Messiah and how this view is based upon an organic reading of the Jewish scriptures. If you read from Genesis to the end of the Jewish scriptures, um, in the Jewish scriptures in the Tanakh, it would be Divrei Hayamim, in the second, the second book of Chronicles. Um, in the Christian Bible, it ends with the book of Malachi. But if you read from the beginning to the end, there's a picture that develops. I also hope to provide some useful guidelines along the way to, to help determine whether any given passage in the Bible is truly a prophetic prophecy about the Messiah. So let's begin with an obvious place to start, and that is the word Messiah. The word Messiah 
is really just an English rendering of the Hebrew word Mashiach. It's not a translation. It, it's a bit like the word Hanukkah, which is the English way of saying Hanukkah. You don't know what the Hebrew word Hanukkah means just because you said the word Hanukkah. Hanukkah means a dedication. But you wouldn't know that from the word Hanukkah. It's just the English way of saying it. Likewise, when we say the word Messiah, it doesn't tell you what the Hebrew word Mashiach means. So what does it mean? Well, it comes from the Hebrew word Limshoach, which means to anoint or to apply liquid to something. And one example in the scripture of this word being used is a reference in the second book of Samuel, chapter 1, verse 21, which speaks about a shield not anointed with oil. In Hebrew, bli Mashiach ba shomen. This is the way they used to um, protect themselves. In a battle, they would smear a shield with oil, thereby the spears that were coming would slide off it. But that's a very unique use of the term in the Bible. That's not usually the way it's used. Usually, the term Mashiach is used to speak of someone who was anointed, and specifically anointed with special holy oil. So if we look at our first source, we'll see that in Exodus chapter 30, God instructs Moses to make a holy anointing oil. And in verse 26, which is where we're going to read from, it says as follows. With it, with this oil, you shall anoint the tabernacle of meeting and the ark of testimony, the table and all its utensils, the lampstand and its utensils, and the altar of incense. Verse 28, the altar of burnt offerings with all its utensils and the lava and its base. You shall consecrate them that they may be most holy. Whoever touches them must be holy. What's this referring to? When the Jewish people left Egypt, they made this um, portable tabernacle um, for the indwelling of God's presence among them. They had an altar there. They had all these utensils. And God told Moses that what he should do is, in order to uh, inaugurate them into and initiate them into the service of God, they should be anointed with oil. Verse 30, we read, And you shall anoint Aaron and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may minister to me as priests. Because Aaron and his sons were going to be priests that that were serving in the tabernacle, so therefore they too were anointed with this oil. Now, In Leviticus chapter 4, verse 3, we read about the high priest, and we see that he's called the anointed priest. Let's read the verse together. It's verse, chapter 4, verse 3. If the anointed priest, in the Hebrew there it's Hakoen Hamashiach, the anointed priest, shall sin so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer for his sin, which he has sinned, a young bullock without blemish, unto the Lord for a sin offering. So what do we see over here? We see that the priest was anointed with oil, and he was actually called a Mashiach, an anointed one. In addition to the priests and the vessels of the tabernacle, kings were also anointed. And we'll see this in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 1, where we read about King Saul being anointed as the first king of Israel. What does it say over there? Then Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on his head, kissed him and said, has not the Lord anointed you a ruler over his his inheritance? So what do we see? We see that the kings were anointed. This is also true for King David. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, we read how King David was anointed. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord came 
mightily upon David from that day forward. Now, the king was anointed, and as a result of that, he was sometimes referred to as Mashiach, as anointed. So, we see a reference here in 1 Samuel chapter 24, verse 6. Um, king Saul being referred to as the Lord's anointed one, Mashiach Hashem. This is a story that takes place when David had an opportunity to strike back at King Saul. What happened was we know that Saul persecuted David because he felt that he was a threat and therefore wanted to put King David to death. There were many opportunities where David could have uh, taken actions to kill King Saul. And his men actually encouraged him to do that. And so what do we read in chapter 24, verse 6? We read, he said to his men, this is David speaking, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, Mashiach Hashem, to raise my hand against him, for he is the Lord's anointed. So, what we see over here is that the king being anointed can be called Mashiach. In addition to kings, in the Bible we read about prophets being anointed. For example, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 16, we read about Elisha being anointed. Also, you shall anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, as king over Israel, and you shall anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, of Abu Mahola, as prophet in your place. What's interesting is, we have in the scriptures, in the Jewish Bible, a reference to a non-Jewish king being referred as God's anointed one. In Isaiah 45, verse 1, we read about King Cyrus. It says, Thus said the Lord to his anointed, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and strip kings of their robes to open doors before him and the gates shall, and the gates shall not be closed. And finally, in Psalm 105, verse 15, we see that the nation of Israel is actually referred to as being God's anointed ones. As it says, do not touch my anointed ones. Do, uh, do my prophets no harm. So to summarize, Messiah means anointed. And in the Bible, priests, prophets, and kings were all anointed and can be referred to as Messiah, as we've seen in the example of the high priest, King Saul, King David, and even Cyrus. Now, this might surprise people, but the term the Messiah never appears in the Bible, apart from the references that I refer to in reference to the high priest, HaKohen HaMashiach. But otherwise, that word, HaMashiach, never appears. You see, it would be a lot easier to discuss about the Messiah and be able to look for references in the Bible that clearly speak about this Messiah if we could take a concordance, open it up, and look at all the places where it says HaMashiach, and then say, well, what does it say about this HaMashiach? The problem is, this title, HaMashiach, is never used in reference to this future king. In this, so, how did we ever get to referring to this person as the Messiah? Now, for the purpose of tonight's lecture, I'm going to provide you with the answer, and then after that, show you how we arrive at that answer, how we got there. So here goes. As I mentioned, Jewish kings were anointed. And what I will be showing you are passages in the Jewish scriptures that speak about a special time to come in the future in which the world will be transformed into a perfect world. 
The Bible also tells us about a special king that will sit on the throne of David and rule the world at that time. Now since this king is a Jewish king, and like we said, the Jewish kings were anointed, so this king will also be anointed with this special oil. And he can rightfully be called an anointed one, a messiah, a Mashiach. Now, since this king is going to be a king at a special time, the t- something that we've been anticipating and yearning for, and since this king is designated by God for this unique and special role, we by convention have called him the Messiah. Meaning the anointed one that we've all been looking forward to and been waiting for. And so today when we say, I, I believe in the coming of Mashiach, I'm waiting for Mashiach, we've rolled up all the promises that God has made about this future time and rolled it all up into one word, Mashiach. And we're waiting for the Mashiach, the king who's going to rule at that time. Now before we go into the specific passages that talk about these things, I'd like to make a brief remark about the Jewish scriptures. And that is as follows. The Jewish scriptures is a very big book. Um, I'm almost finished reading it. Again, I, go try, I try to finish it every three months. It's a very long book and it takes many hours uh, to read through. Um, but what will happen if you read through the scriptures, you'll find that it contains a lot of different things. So, for example, it includes many stories. Um, stories that have happened in the past. And I would, consider, I would call those a group of, I put it into a group of narratives. A lot of narratives in the scripture. It also contains many laws. Many laws. Uh, kosher and, 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 and laws of purity and impurity. And let's call that group legislation. There's lots of legislation in the Bible. It also has books like Proverbs, a book like the book of Psalms, which are poetry and wisdom literature, which is another group of writings. That's all within one Bible. And then, finally, it contains a group which I would consider to be prophecies, which means predictions about the future. Okay? So we have narratives, legislation, wisdom literature, and poetry, as well as prophecy. Now, if we want to find information about this future king, where would be the best place to look? Well, prophecies would probably be the best place to look. Because going to narratives about the past wouldn't be my first choice to find out about something that's going into the future. Not that it couldn't give me some hint or clues, but it wouldn't be the first place to go. Certainly not. What about legislation and the laws? Well, if there are any laws in the Bible about the Messiah, then that that would be a good place to look. But unless you're going to find laws about the Messiah, then we wouldn't go to passages which talk about, you know, laws of uh, kosher, so to speak, to to find out about, about the Messiah. Um... That leaves us with prophecies. Within prophecies, there are basically two categories. There are short-term prophecies and long-term prophecies. What's a short-term prophecy? So everybody knows the story in the book of Jonah, where Jonah was sent by God to tell the people of Nineveh that in 40 days, God's going to turn over the whole city. That's a very short-term prophecy, a prediction about what's going to take place in 40 days. Similarly, we have in the book of Jeremiah, uh, a prophecy about 70 years. Again, it's a very finite, limited time frame where God, through the prophet Jeremiah, tells the Jewish people about what's going to be taking place in a span of 70 years. Those are short-term prophecies. But then you have another group which are long-term or indefinite prophecies about something that's to come in the distant future, at least from the perspective of the prophets who are speaking these prophecies. 
Such prophecies will often include or start with a phrase like in the days to come or in those days and then in that time that gives us an indication that this is a prophecy about some future time. When we survey all the passages in the Bible that can essentially be seen as promises by God to the Jewish people about this future time, some major features stand out. Let's go through a few of them. Number one, one of the things that stand out is that the Bible speaks about the Jewish people being gathered back into the land of Israel from their exile. This is repeated numerous times. Another thing that is mentioned is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. A third thing, which is something that is striking, it tells us that at that time, there will be Torah observance, meaning to say, the Jewish people will be brought back to worshipping God and following all His commandments. That would be a beautiful thing. It talks about a world that will no longer be in a state of war between nations, but rather the world will be a peaceful world with the nation of Israel living back in the land of Israel safely and securely. And it tells us that that world is going to be a world which is filled with the knowledge and recognition of God, the awareness of God's presence, and that all of the nations will come together to worship the God of Israel in one accord, together. It's a beautiful picture. Let's take a look at some of these passages. So let's start with the passages that talk about the ingathering of the exile. So Deuteronomy chapter 30 comes after a chapter that talks about all the curses that will befall the Jewish people if they fail to follow God's commandments. And there are terrible curses in that chapter. But what God tells us is that after these things come to pass, the blessings and the curses, the Jewish people will take heed to God's word and they will return to God and God will bring us back into the land. So Deuteronomy chapter 30 verse 3, then after we return to God, then the Lord your God will bring you back, will bring back your captivity and have mercy upon you and he will gather you in from all the peoples to which the Lord your God scattered you. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 11. It shall be on that day that the Lord will once again show his hand to acquire the remnant of his people who will have remained. If we go to verse 12, he will raise a banner for the nations and assemble the castaways of Israel. And he will gather in the dispersed ones of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Jeremiah chapter 30 verse 3. For behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will return the captivity of my people Israel and Judah, said the Lord, and I will return them to the land that I gave their forefathers, and they will possess it. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 17. Therefore says the Lord God, I will assemble you from the nations and gather you in from the land where you have been scattered and give you the land of Israel. Now there are more passages, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to mention all the passages. But what's important to point out is that this is an idea that is taught consistently and clearly throughout the scriptures. This is something that you will see with the other features. When we talk about the rebuilding of the temple, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2, it will happen in the end of days. Notice the preamble over here. It's the end of days. 
The mountain of the temple of the Lord will be firmly established as the head of the mountains, and it will be exalted above the hills, and all the nations will stream to it. Many people will go and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 7. All the flocks of Kedah will be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaoth will serve you. They will be brought up with favor upon my altar, and I will glorify the house of my splendor. This same idea is taught again in Isaiah chapter 66, verse 20. The idea being that there's clear references to a temple that is restored and rebuilt that everybody will flock to in this future age. Ezekiel chapter 40 to 40 through 44 describe how the third temple will be built and inaugurated. So again, this is not just one isolated passage somewhere that somebody dreamt up might be an allusion to something that might seem like a reference to something that could potentially, if you twist it, be a passage that might be talking about a future temple. No, these are clear passages that tell you explicitly that this is what's going to be in the future. The Torah observance. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 30, we've already said, is something that's speaking about the future. And what it says over there is you shall return, in verse 8, you shall return and listen to the voice of the Lord and perform all his commandments that I command you to say. And in verse 10 it says, when you listen to the voice of the Lord your God to observe his commandments and his decrees that are written in this book of the Torah, when you shall return to the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And in context, this is speaking after a time where God circumcises the hearts of the Jewish people. This is certainly a time where we will be living in a messianic era. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 32 for this is the covenant that I will seal with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will place my Torah within them, and I will write it onto their hearts. I will be a God for them, and they will be a people for me. Ezekiel chapter 11, verse 19. I will give them an undivided heart, and I will place a new spirit in them. I will remove the heart of stone and, uh, from their flesh, and give them a heart of flesh, so that they may walk in my decrees and observe my laws and fulfill them. What do we see here? This is speaking about a future time where God tells us he's going to give us a new heart. And what is going to be the result of that new heart? What's going to be a result of that new spirit? That we will follow in God's ways and we will be observing the Torah and the commandments. The fourth thing, the fourth thing speaks about peace and tranquility. So I have a reference over here in Micah chapter 4 verse 1. In days to come, again notice the preamble. The mountain of the <coughs> Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up, up above the hills. People shall stream to it. Verse 2, And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in this path. For out of thine shall go forth instruction, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples, and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit, they shall all sit under their own vines, under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Now again, this passage is not half a verse that if you twist it, it could perhaps means something. This is a whole passage which is talking clearly about the future. 
and it speaks about what is going to happen. And it tells us in that context that there's going to be peace. There's, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. This is not something that somebody dreamt up. This is something that God clearly communicated through the prophet. And the truth is, if Micah chapter 4 would not be in the Bible, we would know the very same thing from Isaiah chapter 2, which says exactly the same thing, almost verbatim. Isaiah chapter 60, verse 18. Violence shall no longer be heard in your land, neither wasting nor destruction within your borders. But you shall call your wall salvation, and your case praise. Isaiah 32, verse 18. <coughs> my, <coughs> my people will dwell in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Hosea, chapter 2, verse 18. In that day, I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field, with the, with the birds of the air, and with the creeping things of the ground. Bow and sword of battle I shall show. Well, I am not exactly sure what happened to that. There was still probably about, I don't know, 15 minutes left on the program on the the uh, audio clip, but it just shut off, so I don't know what happened. Anyway, um, uh, I just want people to understand what it means to be a Messiah, because a lot of Christians flip out and say, well, Jesus was the only Messiah, but they don't know the scriptures. They think they do, but they don't. I'm on wash plant, so it's probably going to break up a little bit. The guest call-in number is 917-889-8827. That's 917-889-8827. There is a chat room at blogtalkradio.com forward slash fundamentally Mormon. Yeah. It doesn't look like there's anybody in there, and um, my wife and kids are all very busy right now, so they couldn't be on tonight. So I guess um, I guess we'll just have to end the program for tonight. Um, it was only an hour long, but that's fine. Um, I like to do between one to two hours a night. So I'm actually really tired tonight. I I had COVID last week, and uh, the doctor said that I'll have residual effects of it for probably 10 to 15 days. So my uh, my body hurts, and um, and I'm pretty tired. But hopefully, I'll be able to finish this shift and not have to go in early. 
I don't like to go in early because that means that I have to come out on Saturday night after sundown, and I don't want to do that. So, anyway, um, well, I really don't know what else to say other than thank you for listening to the program thus far, and uh, I guess we'll just have to end it. So, uh, thank you for listening. I hope this is beneficial to you. And uh, you have a good night. We'll be back on tomorrow with another episode of Fundamentally Mormon on Zion's Redemption Radio Network. Take care, everyone. God bless. And goodbye.